welcome to the show. Welcome to the new show, Talent Equals. New show, same music. So um, I hope you don't mind that, but frankly, we tried to find new music, but I couldn't decide on anything that I preferred more than the current music for the podcast. So here we are, new theme, same music. I am very happy to be bringing you today's guest, Sheila Heen. And I think Sheila's expertise fits so well with what we're trying to do with Talent Equals. And as a community, I dare say, we are, I hope, all interested in the idea of progressing and developing. And if you're going to get good at developing, you've got to get good at getting feedback on board, which is the very tool through which we can understand where we're falling short or where we're doing well and then calibrate and improve. And Sheila, well, Sheila is a deep thinker on this topic. Um, she is, with her co-author Douglas Stone, created a fantastic book in Thanks for the Feedback, The Science and Art of Receiving Feedback Well. Sheila is actually a bit of a unique individual because she's not only a very sharp and bright intellectual on this topic, but she's also a great teacher. And that combination, I think, makes her a very valuable guest to have on and for us all to listen to. I'm certain as you listen, you'll hear that and hear how just generally interesting Sheila is and how much she's interested in other people. There's a mental model through the book that I would have you think about. We're going to focus on the title of the show being called Thanks for the Feedback. But I'm going to specifically point you at this mental model around the three types of feedback. Evaluation, coaching, and appreciation. That model itself was one of the big changes for me in understanding of what types of feedback can come at us. And we sort of discussed that a little bit. And it's one of the models that Sheila introduces in the book and we talk a little bit about in the episode as well. So yeah, I'm thrilled to be bringing you this conversation with Sheila Heen as the first episode under Talent Equals. And then I'm going to give you one other, I dare say at present, it's it could be torture for you all out there. Um, I'm actually going to read a poem because as part of the episode, we actually talked about my own fear of writing poetry, which I am doing, and getting feedback on that poetry. And it became an interesting little conversation for us. And so I wanted to sort of put myself out there a little bit and do this because I feel like if we aren't prepared to go to a place where we feel a little bit vulnerable and a little bit risky and open ourselves up to feedback, both positive and negative, well, then I'd be a hypocrite. So I'm going to do a short poem on feedback. And well, I hope you enjoy it. (laughs) But if you don't, you can give me some evaluation, coaching or appreciation. So without further ado, I'm going to give you Sheila Heen and a short poem. Feedback. Feedback is the failure that brings a chance for change. Feedback is the stinging rebuke of an idea gone south. Feedback is the digits that flash with a merciless truth of your midnight snack. Feedback is the heart-beating victory 
birthed in a moment of joy, which was carried through months of misery. Feedback is the clapping hands given a chance when you said yes to that dream. Feedback is the karmic thread reminding you of the integrity you earned in a thousand lives gone before. Feedback is the lover who tells you that your sun has finally set. Feedback are the knees and the back that ache with the years finally speaking. Feedback is the warmth of the sun across your face on a walk you never wanted. Feedback, the crisply stacked pages of the story you promised you would steal from comfort. Feedback, the bright red bike whose heart you bought with a hundred days of leaf-blown gardens. Feedback, the smile of your child that tells you all is well in the world. Feedback, life is feedback. Hello, Sheila Heen. It's uh, wonderful to have you on the podcast. I am totally delighted to be here. Fantastic. Well, Sheila, for those of the listeners who don't know you, you're a senior lecturer at Harvard Law School, part of the Harvard Negotiation Project. You're a co-author with Douglas Stone on two fantastic books, I must say, Difficult Conversations and Thanks for the Feedback. You're a founder of a consulting firm, Triad Consulting, mother to three children, and according to your co-author, Douglas Stone, you're amazing at drawing caricatures that while looking nothing like the person, do look like the soul of that person. <laughs> that's, the, that's very kind feedback from our friend Doug, yes. <laughs> a little bit double-edged, but yes. <laughs> Leaning toward kind. <laughs> <laughs> I would yes, love to see and, one of these and characters. what do I do with all my free time, right? Yeah, right, exactly, yeah. exactly, wonderful. Well, I must say again, thank you so much for, for coming on the show with me today. I've been very much looking forward to talking with you. Um, and uh, I am something of a, a fervent evangelist for your book. Um, thanks for the feedback, given it's kind of one of the close things within my wheelhouse as a headhunter. So very much looking forward to sort of getting into talking with you about you know your experiences and talking to you about thanks for the feedback and your experience around feedback. But before we do all of that, um, I mean, I gave a bit of a background to you, but I'd love to hear your origin story. So yeah, maybe you could tell me how you came to be a lecturer in law, how you've been drawn to negotiation and an interest in feedback conversations. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, let's see. I mean, I was born in Des Moines, Iowa, and grew up in Iowa and Nebraska. We moved to Nebraska when I was eight. My dad's a lawyer. My mom's a nurse. And I've got two younger sisters. And I and probably looking back, I would say that my my experience in negotiation goes way back to childhood because when you wanted something, you negotiated for it at my mm. house. <laughs> One of the examples I sometimes give my students has to do with when I you know, wanted a horse. And my father said, save your pennies. So I said, well, if I do, can I get a horse? And he said, sure. 
<laughs> I, I was probably a little bit strategic in approaching him when he was distracted and not really paying attention to the conversation <laughs> so I could extract a commitment. <laughs> um, as kids, kids are the best negotiators in the world, as I'm sure you know oh, yeah. as well, mm. William. I mean, mm. it's interesting to me. That's that's one of the first questions that we ask our students um, is to introduce themselves with a self-portrait of themselves as a kid negotiator. Whatever age comes to mind, what did you learn about how to get what you want as a kid? So it it might be because of that early childhood experience for me, mm. I ended up, um, because of a bad breakup, actually, my high school boyfriend dumped me and I didn't want to spend the summer um, sort of being sad and miserable. I wanted to get out of town. And so I was getting these, um, how, how honest and how, uh, I love how it. I love it. But you know, I, I love this because it's so true. We have these kind of really strange origins of where things come from, from us. You know, you know, I often think that's, that's so cool. No, so please, yeah, share with us. That's absolutely brilliant. Well, it's, it, yeah, because I was getting these, I had done well enough on the PSAT, which is a, a exam that American kids take as juniors in high school that I was getting catalogs and one of the catalogs I got was from Harvard summer school and they run a summer program for high school students and I thought fantastic uh this guy just dumped me I'm totally devastated I'm just going to get out of town for the summer and go do something else but we didn't have the money for me to go do that I was simultaneously um you know a three season athlete in high school and had less and less time for horseback riding and taking care of my horse. Cause I had been riding competitively since I was 10 or 11 and bought my first horse. This is the horse you managed and to get through that in that this moment. Is the horse right? I managed wow. to get. Yeah. Yeah. So I, <laughs> um, I sold my horse and the horse trailer and I used that money to pay for summer school at Harvard so I came to Cambridge um, in 1985. Now we're pegging how old I am for all your <laughs> listeners who can do math. I hope there aren't too many of those. Um, it was a good year, and, 1985. Good year. Yeah. yeah that's right, that's right. <laughs> and, and then I met all of these kids who kind of knew what was up, right? So they're like, well, if you haven't taken achievement tests yet and you haven't done this and that, then, you know, the, they, they really understood the whole getting into college thing in a way that my high school and my community was not focused on. Like almost everybody just went to the university of Nebraska downtown. And so I think I, it opened my eyes in to other opportunities. And I came home from that summer and walked into my guidance counselor's office and said, you know, I need to, I need to sign up to take something called the SAT. What is that? And she said, Oh honey, you don't need to take the SAT you know, you're already taking the ACT. You only have to take the SAT if you're not going to go to the university. And I said, well, I, I'd like to sign up for the SAT. Let me reiterate. So um, <laughs> nobody around me was asking any of those questions or, mm. or having those conversations. And so then I did sort of a scattershot application to college with my heart set on Stanford. I didn't get in. And at the last minute ended up applying in June after I graduated from high school. Actually, I applied to Occidental College and, you know, totally out of the cycle. Um, they accepted me and 
gave me enough money that I could figure out how to pay for it. And so I ended up in Los Angeles for college. Walked on campus the first day, having never been there, never visited, um, and just totally loved it. I really thrived there. So um, four years in California and, you know, working three jobs to pay for it, myself mostly, meant that, and, and by the way, I should maybe say that when I was 16, my dad left his law firm and went out on his own. And that, I think, reflects how risk tolerant he is. And I think he taught me to be very risk tolerant just by example, but it also meant that we just didn't have very much money, right? Client, mm. he does deals and those take a couple of years to come to fruition if they do come to fruition. And no in many feeling. cases, yep. no so yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so it just was a, a dicey time for me to be then going mm. to college and needing to pay for it. But I think actually working my way through school was a really good experience for me because I was certainly very invested in making the most of it. Um, and then I came to law school after that, partly like many people, because I didn't really know what else to do. Um, but I didn't, I wanted to go to Yale and I didn't get in. <laughs> You're sensing a theme in my life here. Um, and I had applied to Harvard on a whim, actually on the very last day, not really sure I wanted to go there, but my my counselor, my college advisor said to me, you know, they have this whole negotiation thing and my instinct is that might be a, a really interesting fit for you. And so I ended up, again, not thinking that was where I wanted to go and ending up at Harvard and during my first year took the negotiation course and then I just fell in love. I just thought like, oh, I want to learn about this and I have a feeling it's going to take me my entire life. So that was a very abrupt end to a very long story, I realized. Sheila, that was a fantastic um, origin story. Thank you. I mean, I, I hear in that there was this young girl who recognized what she wanted. She wanted a horse, which many do. And my four-year-old daughter is saying exactly the same thing to me now. So I really have to be careful what I promise as she gets a little bit older. Um, <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. You're on, you're on alert. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that was sort of led you in some roundabout ways to sort of recognize the power of negotiation as kids teach us that. And yeah, you're right. They really teach us like the things that we do and they pick up on those and they react to them so well. Um, and they're, they're incredibly attentive. Um, and then you took, you took all of that and you sort of embarked upon a bit of an exploration of, you know, what you wanted next in your life. And that, and turns out that a counselor actually knew what, they were talking about when they said you'd be good for negotiation and um, that kind of, you know, kind of wrapping it all up led you through a weaving kind of road to, to Harvard and discovering the negotiation work that they're doing there. Um, so, so that's, that's kind of an interesting progression because I often think about the same when I'm, when I'm advising people in their careers, certainly early on the kids I'm working with early on, I often say that, you know, look, don't, don't worry about it too much. Just be explorative and, and find out what kind of lights you up a little bit early on. And they kind of look at you like, I don't know what that means. And you're like, okay, well, don't have so much pressure on yourself. Just go and explore the world and react to the things that you feel good about. And, and when you do find something that feels good, then you can sort of kind of explore that further. So Sheila, yeah, as I mentioned, you wrote this awesome book with Douglas. And I've got to say thank you. Thank you for the feedback book. 
there we go um <laughs> this has been you know really great for me because i'm a big fan of mental models and applying mental models to how we operate because once you can understand how things are working i feel you can really experiment and play with them with confidence so um yeah i'm, I'm keen to hear just to run through some of the fundamentals that you outline in in feedback and thank you for the feedback so maybe we start with a big one why is feedback yeah. so important oh golly well um I think that when people hear the word feedback, what we immediately think about are performance appraisals, performance reviews, very formal moments of feedback, grades, getting hired or not hired for the job, mm. <laughs> um, if we're going to go into headhunting, oh, yeah. being proposed to or not <laughs> um, is feedback, right? Like, am I just not good enough for you? Is this relationship not where we thought it was? That's feedback. So so you can hear me going from the examples that we all think about into examples that like, oh, right, I guess that is feedback. And, and I think feedback is all around us. So it's sometimes formal, but more often it's informal. It can be spoken, but it's often unspoken and indirect rather than direct. So, you know, I have clues all around me about the way I'm impacting other people in my world and what they wish I would do differently <laughs> or, or that I'm doing well. Mm. And the question is just, am I paying attention? Mm. So I think that feedback is, it's partly, of course, how we adapt to learn. How do we work best together? How do we collaborate? How do we solve a problem where we're frustrating each other? Um, how do we change how we're working together to accommodate a new circumstance like a, I don't know, pandemic. Um, and feedback is really the engine for learning and change and pursuing excellence and understanding how do we fit in the market? Why, why is this customer buying the ring or not buying the ring from me? I'm, if I'm paying attention, I'm learning that um, often implicitly rather than explicitly, but you can actually ask some questions. So, for me, feedback um, is sort of my relationship with the world and the world's relationship with me. And it's also in an organization how we can learn and adapt quickly together and pursue excellence and always do it a little bit better tomorrow than we did it yesterday. Um, and yet we get very little we get very little training around it. We have very little vocabulary around it other than a focus on how to give it clearly and how to say thank you, even though what you're saying is <laughs> ridiculous and wrong and misunderstands me entirely. And this isn't my fault. In fact, you're the one who makes it hard to perform around here. So that I think is, is part of what drew us to the topic. Mm. Yeah. I, I certainly heard in that there's this way that it helps you acts like a compass. It's a calibration process for the journey through life, right? This, I, um, I loved hearing the idea that you're you're seeing it everywhere and it's implicit and it's explicit. Yet we just we never get any training about it. You're absolutely right. I I can't think when in my life through my schooling or even into professional education where I really got the opportunity to really get deep into feedback. So I when I find that I find that fascinating, really, that we, we don't spend more time there. Because actually I'll tell you from people I speak to so much in my own training program, they're always asking me, how do I get better at feedback? How do I get better at feedback? Because it's just one of the pain points people are experiencing. So we've got a clearer sense. Well, and, yeah. and when, 
let me ask Please. you, when they say, how do I get better at feedback? What do they mean? Do they mean giving it or do they mean getting it? Huh. Well, I think it's probably both. You're right. Um, I found that interesting about your book, actually, just answering it in a roundabout way that you focused on receiving feedback. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people feel giving feedback is very uncomfortable, right? So yes. um, certainly from maybe if you're in a, in a professional situation where giving feedback is so risky in so many ways. So you want to give feedback to someone, but it may destroy your relationship with them. It may destroy um, friendship. It may make the working relationship mm -hmm. really difficult, but you're seeing a problem. So I think often people are, are focusing in it on that way. They're like, how do I give better feedback? Totally. How do I give the feedback so the other person will just take it? Yes. <laughs> Not be upset with me. Yes. Yes. Exactly. And I think that is the pain point. In other words, this was one of the dilemmas for us in writing the book, which is you want to, when you're writing a book or working on a project that you hope will become a book, um, you're really trying to connect with and speak to someone's felt problem. Meaning, what do I think my problem is? And for most people, the felt problem is the problem of giving. Because I do walk around feeling all of the feedback I'm not giving you because you're driving me crazy. <laughs> but I tried giving it to you last year and you didn't take it anyway. And then we, you know, it was awkward for six months. Yeah. So like, I don't want to do that again. And so we're very aware of the feedback that we are holding back from the other people in our lives, our professional lives and our personal lives. We're often less aware of the feedback they're holding back from us. Yeah. So except for people who are very sensitive, we're, we're, there is a felt problem with like, I, I'm getting this horrible scathing feedback. Um, or we, many of us have someone in our lives who is an endless source of judgment and, <laughs> and critique. Um, that's definitely a felt problem. <laughs> um, but that's the way that we usually experience it. Hmm. Or maybe we say, gosh, I wish I got more feedback around here. There's just sort of a vacuum and I need a, a great mentor but I can't seem to find the right person who's willing to invest in me or my boss is too busy to give me meaningful feedback. Th those are the felt points for receiving. And I think that that's, I think that um, clear pain point around giving is why almost everything out there in the world is about how to give feedback. Mm. And, you know, we did that work too for many years. We were teaching difficult conversations and, and, a big category of difficult conversations is feedback conversations. And so we did what everybody does, which is help teach leaders how to give feedback more skillfully and clearly and more often. Um, but eventually, you know, after maybe 10 years of that, we noticed that it wasn't actually fixing the problem. And it was like, huh, what's not working here? Cause the, we've taught them how to give feedback and, or we come back and ask, how's it going? And they say, yeah, those feedback conversations are still not, not working. Like I tried it and they didn't listen or, or they got totally demotivated or, you know, and so we thought, well, okay, what are we missing? And, and it, it was finally this moment where we were like, oh, wait a minute, we're only focused on half of the equation. The other half of the equation is the struggle to receive feedback for all of us um, from other people in our lives. And maybe that's the key. Maybe the key is understanding what makes it so hard for everybody, all of us, to receive feedback 
And if we can figure that out, and if you can get better at receiving feedback, then you automatically become a better giver. Mm -hmm. Because you just have a sense of what's so hard about it. Um, and you can have richer feedback conversations in both directions and also be very aware that almost any feedback conversation, um, in, in almost any feedback conversation, I'm going to be both a giver and a receiver to some extent as we um, pull apart you know, what's going on, what's in the way, and how do we help fix this, whatever we think the problem is. I think the problem is you, of course, um, but bizarrely, <laughs> you seem to think the problem is me. And so it's going to be a, a two-way conversation just trying to understand and change something that isn't working. I love that. I'm, I, I must say this idea of recognizing that the real value is in being good at receiving feedback because I suppose you know interesting I, I kind of felt that as I was reading through your your book and you had focused because the title is and it was very easy to miss by the way as I did this the science and art of receiving feedback well because I think I went into this book with like all right I'm going to be really good at like thanks to the feedback figuring out how to give amazing feedback right because that's where I do most of my work is you haven't got the job you know and this is why and all of that sort of good stuff. But then, yeah, it was focused on receiving. I was like, of course, of course, because every amazing moment in my life is where somebody tells me I'm doing something, I could how, how to improve it. Like, okay, well, you did that a bit crap, right? Try doing it this way yeah. next time. Or, you know, have you thought about, you know, when you're doing maybe like a martial art, put your foot in this position, you know, or if you're coaching and someone says, yeah. you know, stop, stop doing that really weird thing you do every time somebody's talking, you know, with yeah. your face. And I'm like, oh, okay, I didn't know I did that. And so these these are, are moments where yeah. you really are able to go, oh, and progress and move to a next stage. And so I love that you focus there. So in the book, you actually, and this kind of connects to that, you did mention about the learning mindset as being key to happiness and being good at receiving feedback. So yeah. What, what do you mean by the learning mindset and why is it important? Well, so this is um, drawing from Carol Dweck's work on fixed mindset and learning mindset. So Carol's out at Stanford and um, she's written some fantastic books. And the, the core of it is that we can hold our, who we are as either fixed or changing, growing over time. So often for many of us, the instinct is, is very black and white. And we actually talk about this a little bit in difficult conversations in the chapter on identity, that part of the reason why conversations can be difficult is because we hear it as saying something, the situation is saying something about us or the other person is saying something about us. You know, I'm either competent or incompetent, loyal or disloyal, a good person or a bad person, um, worthy of love, or maybe not. And that we hold those things as very black and white when the truth is always more complex than that. So what Carol Dweck would say that a, in a fixed mindset, you're hearing feedback, um, we would say, as verdict hmm. about who you are. You, you, you're born, you're as smart as you're going to be or not going to be. Those things are pretty fixed, those traits. Um, they're not necessarily going to change much. So every test Every job interview, every promotion or not is telling you whether you measure up, hmm. whether you're smart enough, competent enough, talented enough, whatever. Um, and that that makes feedback really fraught 
because who I am is, is on the line every single time. A growth mindset says, well, look, when, if we think about the things that really matter in life, um, leadership, you know, applying yourself, hard work, collaboration with others, et cetera, those are all things that you can get better at. And so feedback is just telling me how I'm doing right now and what's the next thing maybe I should work on that I could get better at. And so in that case, feedback is actually valuable information about what to work on next. Um, and it's, you know, a snapshot of a moment in time in an arc of learning in our lives. And that lowers the stakes on um, it being a judgment of who I am or ever will be. Um, and instead, it's not that it's not painful, actually, but um, it, it it's aligned with sort of the story in my head about who I am and where I'm going. That's beautiful. I It's such a subtle difference between you know, seeing it as a threat or seeing it as a present, you know, or that. A gift. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I hear that. And it's such a, the thing about growth set mindset or fixed mindset. And I, I sort of reflect on that in, in myself. And I, when I hear that, I, I recognize actually that maybe have been one of the things when you're young and you're in an industry that you don't have fear of what people think of you so that it's okay to make mistakes, it's okay to grow, it's okay to change. And as we get older, we get into these positions where we have to have, you know, be an authoritative figure. We have to be right. We can't be wrong. The feedback, like you've said, really does challenge at the center of who we are if you've got the wrong attitude towards what that could mean for you. At all stages, we get the chance to grow. It's actually my birthday tomorrow. And um, someone said to me, so how are you doing with your birthday? And uh, I'm like, yeah, I'm all right. And it's all right. Well, it's, it's a, I'm 39. It's a, the, the big four O's on the horizon, right? I'm like, yeah, yeah. And like, how do you feel about that? And I'm like, well, I'm actually okay with that because I think 30 is one of the most fraught years, actually. They're like a year where you, people will have these expectations that you're getting older, that you're supposed to know stuff. You Inside, you don't feel like you know anything. And so you're getting all this feedback from the outside world that, yeah, you should know what you're doing. You should have a career. You should know your direction. But inside, you're thinking, oh, my God, I don't know what I am. I still don't know where I am, what I'm good at. And so there's this, I can really hear that negotiation process at specific times of life. And certainly it was for me in my 30s anyway. So this is fascinating because it sounds like the sense is, oh, I'm supposed to be fully baked here any moment <laughs> um like I, i'm supposed to have sort of arrived yeah. at some place where i'm now um you know as good as i'm gonna be or or um somehow i'm finished which of course we don't arrive at but what's what's fascinating to me is that in your 20s you felt more open maybe to feedback because you didn't think you were supposed to be good at yeah. it and it's fascinating because I totally get that. And then I also sometimes hear and experience and observe the, the flip side of that, which is, and maybe this is because I'm a, I'm a decade ahead of you. Um, but I see, I think back on my own twenties and I watch my law students, right. And young professionals who are in their twenties. Um, and the, the rap on millennials is that they're, you know, so sensitive to feedback and they only want appreciation and praise and, and they overreact to any negative feedback. Um, and it, maybe it's just the 
the population that I deal with who tend to have atrophied failure muscles because <laughs> they haven't failed it very much. <laughs> but I do think actually when I was young anyway as a professional, I was more sensitive to feedback because I was asking myself like, am I up to this? Am I good enough for this? Am I going to succeed at this? And any mistake I made was a huge deal mm. and was maybe in indicative of the thought that I should just quit and move home with my parents uh, and give up on this whole professional thing. And and now, with the arc of a couple more decades of experience, I've made enough mistakes that I, I'm probably actually less sensitive about it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that was that's just the latest mistake. Okay, we'll write that one down on the very long list of things that I should pay attention to and learn something from. And it doesn't mean that I am not, you know, cut out to be in this field, it just means I've still got stuff to work on, which yeah. obviously that's normal. So, so it's really interesting to hear you describe going from maybe more open and less sensitive to more sensitive as, as we think we are supposed to have expertise. Yeah. Um, I think, cause yeah. I think I, I watched myself maybe have the opposite. I think I'm more open and less reactive. Yeah. That's, that's isn't it? And then maybe that's the reason giving and receiving feedback is so difficult because we're all, we're all entirely different, aren't we, in where we are in the process. And I've certainly come to realize that it, there's so much value in being a humble person and just accepting getting really great people around you and then listening attentively to what they're going to say to you. So you're sitting there, you're getting yeah. feedback. How do you manage the problem of sort of rating the feedback that you're receiving? What is what are the things that you recommend? Yeah, so so the the observation um, is that if you there's some evidence that if you look at people's sensitivity to feedback, and what that means is how upset do you get when you get negative feedback, and how long does it take you to recover, or how happy does positive feedback make you and how long do you sustain that sort of positive bounce emotionally? Um, and that individuals can vary up to 3000%. Mm -hmm. And now we're all on teams together and trying to offer each other feedback <laughs> and we just have really different challenges. So if you're, if you're under sensitive, one of the challenges is that you don't, you don't understand that people are giving you feedback. Um, <laughs> I've met those. You know, because they're being so indirect. <laughs> they're being so indirect that you're just, you know, they're like, you know, William does it this way. You're like, oh, good for William. <laughs> you know, let's move on. Um, <laughs> or, or you really do get the feedback, but because you don't have a big emotional reaction to it, it's hard to remember it, actually. Memory is very tied to emotion. And so you've got the best of intentions, but by next week you've forgotten about mm. it. So getting through to you is harder if you're undersensitive. And, and we probably all know people who you have to hit them over the head to even get their attention. So that's just a different set of challenges. And I would say that Doug and I, uh, my co-author, have we have really different profiles and that made us a, a, a good pairing for this book because I am probably a little bit more even keel I bounce, I, I get quite upset, but I bounce back relatively quickly. Mm. Doug would describe himself as, as hypersensitive to feedback. And um, sometimes people ask him, you know, how do I know if I'm sensitive? And he's like, 
yeah, if you don't know, then you're not. <laughs> because people who are super sensitive to feedback, like there's just no ambiguity about it. <laughs> you live your life sort of in fear. Um, so, so what happens if you, if you get a really upsetting piece of feedback, wherever you fall on that spectrum, of course, some feedback is going to be more upsetting than others. Um, if you are really devastated by a piece of feedback, part of what happens is that the feedback gets supersized. Like, it grows beyond actual size. So it's not one thing that you screwed up. Um, it's everything. Yeah. Like, you've never done anything right in your whole life. Mm. And it's not now. It's forever. Like, I'm never going to... There's there's shame associated with it. There's a sense of hopelessness, like I'm never going to get better at this. You're lying awake at night. For me, it would be trying not to cry <laughs> unsuccessfully. So um, I in that state, you just can't learn. And so in order to get to a place where you can learn, you've got to find ways to um, see the feedback at actual size, to right-size it. And so, you know, there are a bunch of things that we talk about. One is is that growth mindset shift. Um, a second is to do what we sometimes call a containment chart. Like, what is this feedback about and what isn't it about? This is about, um, you know, whether they think I have the skills it takes to operate at the next level, which is why they didn't give me the promotion. And those skills include, you know, my my client cultivation skills. What isn't it about? What it isn't about is actually that I'm doing a bang-up job at the job that I currently have. Once the client's in the door, I am their favorite person in the entire world, um, and I get lots of follow-on business. So what is it about? Maybe it's about my new cultivation skills. So what I, But what I don't need to worry about is once I get to know someone, whether I can deliver. So, so you're starting to sort. Mm. And this isn't about whether I'm a good partner. It's not whether I'm a good parent. It's not about whether I am a good colleague to work with. Mm. Um, and so you're, you're kind of making a chart that helps you isolate what it is about and also appreciate the things about you that are really not um, under fire, maybe, to give you a place to stand. So the, you said the same about right-sizing and then sort of the containment charts. It's almost like categorizing what you've got and then seeing them in this, this sort of dark light of day and be able to say, okay, I get it. And it's not, it's not drawing, it's not kind of making a criticism of my central being that I'm worthless and not, not capable. It's about trying to disentangle it from, yeah, the, the emotions that you may be having and these sort of some, some insecurities and trying to focus in on the actual thing that they're yeah. saying. Yeah. We have a whole chapter called dismantling the distortions. Um, and maybe the one other thing that I'll add here is is thinking about a second score. So the first score is whatever the devastating feedback I just got was. You know, I failed the test. I got fired. I didn't, um, you know, I was the lowest rated speaker at the conference. Everybody hates me. That's my first score. Super depressing. My second score has to do with what do I decide to do with that? Um. I had a really devastating speaking engagement maybe seven or eight years ago, and it didn't it didn't go well for a whole bunch of reasons. And I was just felt ill um, afterwards. And after I licked my wounds for a while um, and sulked, uh, I decided, all right, I'm going to make learning what's different about speaking 
my project for the next year. Because I think for many, many years, so I'd been teaching classes and teaching workshops, which are longer form, for years. And when we had a shorter, um, like an hour or an hour and 15 minutes, and it was more of a talk, a speech, I had been getting away with just doing a workshop faster. And because it was really good content and because that was interactive, that worked well. Then I got in a situation where I was supposed to have an hour and 15 minutes. I actually only had 45 minutes. I didn't adapt well. It, and that's the time it went really badly. But it shook me up enough to think like, okay, maybe there's just something. This is just a different animal. Like giving a talk, a keynote, is a different animal than running a workshop and teaching. And what can I learn about that? And so I made it my project for the next year to let go of my habits and things that had gotten me by and... I read books and I watched talks and I, you know, asked a friend of mine who teaches preachers, like, how do you think about teaching someone to give a five minute homily? <laughs> and what are the principles underlying that, which I need to learn? And, and so then now I feel like I have come such a long way and, you know, I speak all over the world and it's fun and interesting and it doesn't always go perfectly, but I'm certainly you know, 400% better at it than I used to be. And that's my second score. So I got an F, (laughs) I got an F seven years ago, but based on what I did about that feedback, I maybe get a, you know, an A minus, um, as my second score for what I decided to learn from it. That is such a lovely example. Thank you, Sheila, for sharing that because I, I heard that there's like this, so many moments when we get these really bad feedback and particularly when we're doing something for the first time, we kind of just give up. And I hear in you that you were able to disentangle yourself from that sort of identity issue that was driving at you saying, you know, Sheila bad, Sheila not worth it you know, type thing to, okay, what was I doing? I obviously able to do stuff and present, but what happened there? And then able to go away and search out experts who could help take you on that journey to get to a place where you would be able to apply understand the underlying principles but then do it better hopefully yeah and i and i don't want to overstate the extent to which i was able to dis uh dislodge from sheila bad because (laughs) i definitely felt sheila bad um and continue to feel sheila bad even today um but i I do also have a little bit of a profile of like, oh, I'll show you mm. that that is motivating. Like, okay, I totally screwed that up, Sheila bad, but I'll come back and show you that, you know, maybe that I'm worth it. So I have a little bit of a, a re- I'm hesitating to call it revenge because it's not hurting them. It's mostly redeeming myself, yeah, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. I get that. That's, I was going to ask you what your self-talk is. Do you have a, you said you have like a little self-talk. What does it sound like when you're, do you have a, do you have a, a model for that? Yeah. And I think I've paid more attention to it. I mean, it's definitely, you know, that sort of burning pit of your stomach shame of like, that was totally humiliating. I, what was I thinking? Why didn't I see this coming? When, when, one of the things I've been really thinking about is confidence. What is, what is confidence? And I think one way to think about it for me is, is as an equation. (laughs) So there's my, there's a variable that is my sense of what the task is that I need to do. And then 
my sense of my own capabilities. Those all have sub variables, obviously, in them. And then if those match up, or I feel like, well, my capabilities are are more than the task, then I'm confident. If my if my sense is that my capabilities are less than the task, then I'm not confident. But now, if I was overconfident, which I definitely was with that talk, um, I was not worried about it, even after watching all the other speakers. <laughs> and I should have been worried about it. So then I've got to do some diagnosis. Like, okay, was it that I underestimated the task and it was actually more complex than I thought it was? Or I didn't adapt when it changed? Um, or was I overconfident about my capabilities and I need to get some more honest with myself about where I've got some work to do? Um, and that actually will help right the ship or fix the equation. Wow. I love that. So you use, use a confidence equation to assess how you've done in the moment to then apply, need to go out and get better at it, understand where maybe there was a mismatch between confidence, the sense of the task and the sense of your own capabilities. And in that, there's an opportunity mm -hmm. then to reflect. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where having a great mental model, right? And having able to be honest with yourself is and try and find a way because that the honesty with yourself is really difficult isn't it to to um to be able to say you know okay i hear that and is that right is it wrong because you said you talk about that in the book you're like there's definitely this moment where like we've got to be good at getting feedback but then there's also this moment where you've got to say i don't want it i don't want feedback either mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. i found we know we're supposed to yeah but we don't really yeah and i, I found that that's <laughs> I completely get you've got to protect yourself from feedback at times because it may be, yeah. it may actually be just harmful and it may not be doing you any good. You may be getting that person who's toxic in your life. Um, but there may be those moments where somebody's giving you feedback, even if they're not someone you like, and it's actually really valuable. So finding that somehow having a methodology and I could hear in that confidence one might be a great way to do that. But um, yeah, that that's a very difficult component. And I don't expect you to have an answer to it, Sheila. If you do, share it. But um, I think maybe that's just experience, isn't it, in life and trying to figure that out. But Partly. I mean, the thing that made me think of the confidence equation was your question about self-talk. Hmm. Because at least in the movies, right, what you see around self-talk is really focused on building up my sense of my capabilities. Like, okay, you can do it. You're a good person you know what you're doing, you're amazing, right? I'm, and, and for me, that has not helped, maybe because it's not coming from a credible source, i.e. me. <laughs> um, what, what has helped me more is getting a better sense of the task, like break it down mm. um, and think, okay, if this, then what? What do I need to be able to do? What don't I think I've got a good handle on yet? etc. Mm. And and then that leads back to what do I need to work on, right? Um, but you're also right. Let's let's talk about the other thing that you just brought up, which is um, chapter 10, by the way, is all about how to turn away feedback, yeah. because there are times where this is just not helping. Yeah, like this constant barrage of criticism is not helping. My, my sister in law teaches strategy at Harvard Business School. She taught at INSEAD. And then she taught for a couple of years at Harvard recently. And um, Harvard has a very different teaching model um, than many other places in terms of the case method and how they use classroom um, conversation. And so the school assigned a coach 
to sit in on her classes and give her feedback at the end of every class. And at first it was very helpful. And then as the classes mounted and the list of things she had to work on kept getting longer and longer and longer, <laughs> she finally said to the coach, like, okay, I, you, this, this has basically destroyed any confidence I had that I even knew how to teach. So I really just need to pause the feedback. I need you not to be present mm. so that I can just focus on working on what you've already given me. Yeah. And then when I'm ready, I'll let you know. So, um, Sometimes we have to draw boundaries in our relationships, um, including like, I can't be in this relationship if you can't keep your judgments and constant criticisms to yourself, or we, we can't talk about this topic. I know that you don't like the person I married. I have now married them. <laughs> and so um, I need to you to keep your comments to yourself on this topic. So, so that's all about boundaries. Yeah. The other thing that you mentioned was sort of all of the different triggered reactions we have to any feedback mm. so maybe we should talk about those. yeah no no that's absolutely what thank you for, for getting us back on track there's so much beautiful stuff in there thank you and i can only imagine what it's like at your household with um, a sister-in-law who's also doing negotiation right and um when you get christmas presents <laughs> <at> christmas. <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah well my, my my husband also teaches negotiation oh, so does my sister my wow. actual sister so yes yeah, so i would whole, oh, i'd love to see how you guys thing. negotiate going for for dinner somewhere that would be amazing um <laughs> <laughs> but um let, let's get on because i was gonna ask you about the, the triggers and there was there was these three blockers right so there was truth, relationship, and identity that you put in, in the book. Or maybe you lead us off on how you want to kind of tackle these. It's yeah, yeah. Well, so what we, in talking to hundreds and then thousands of people about and just listening to their reactions to feedback, what what we realized is that when feed, anytime feedback is incoming to me, I am, first of all, screening it for what's wrong with it. Because if I can find something wrong with it, then I can, you know, set it aside and um, relax and move on with my life. And in terms of what's wrong with it, you know, what you're saying isn't true. That didn't happen the way that you're saying. You're misunderstanding me. How you're giving me this feedback is pathetic. Um, you know, who you are is suspect because you, you don't have any credibility. I don't trust you. I think you've got your own agenda. Um why I think you're giving it to me. Um, you're just trying to undermine me in front of other people or you're just jealous. So we have all kinds of what we call it wrong spotting that we do when we're assessing the feedback coming at us and mm. we're, we're looking for what's wrong with it so that we can, you know, safely reject it. And there are a couple of problems with that. One is we're always going to be able to find something wrong with the feedback that we get. And it, it could be, could be 90% wrong. And that last 10% might actually be a value. And then the second is that those triggered reactions turn out to be pretty universal and that they shouldn't be the end of the story. So we group them, as you just described, kind of into, they fall into three categories of triggered reactions we have when we're getting feedback. The first is what we call truth trigger. And this has to do with assessing the accuracy or or quality of the feedback itself. Like, is that true? Did that happen? Does it understand the full story or context? And to the extent that you're giving me advice, do I think that advice would work? Is this good advice yeah. or bad advice? Yeah. Um, so that's about the content of it. 
But there are two more triggers. The second one is a relationship trigger, and that has to do with who's giving me the feedback. Um, because all feedback lives in that relationship between giver and receiver. Yeah, absolutely. And I often have a bigger reaction to the who than I do to the what, which is which is why a stranger can tell me something. And it might be exactly the same thing mm. as my spouse has told me a hundred times, but I just hear it differently yeah. from a stranger or an acquaintance um, because it's not tied up in all the ways in which my spouse wants me to change and is being annoying about it. That is a classic one for married kind of, people. Yeah, <laughs> really, I know, that really I is know, a classic right? one. Yeah, absolutely. So the challenge of the relationship trigger is like, how do I pull apart the who from the what? Mm. Because we may have issues in our relationship and irritatingly, you also may have something of value yeah. that you're offering me. Yeah. Um, and then the third trigger is what we call an identity trigger. And that has to do with that sensitivity to feedback. Like what's my feedback profile? What's the story I tell about who I am? Um, and how am I wired? Sensitivity, um, growth, mindset, et cetera. And can I manage so so along with that truth relationship identity each of them has a set of challenges the identity challenge is the challenge of being me understanding my own profile and and helping other people know how to give me feedback mm. so that i can hear it sometimes the challenge around relationship triggers is is we call it the challenge of we how do i separate the who from the what and how do I, how do we understand our relationship system? Because if we're having trouble, say, working together, I think you're the problem. You think I'm the problem. And the problem may be the combination of the two yeah. of us or the roles that we're in, et cetera. So how do we take that apart and diagnose it so that we can try to improve it? And then the challenge around truth is the challenge to see, to, to see what in the world the giver is trying to tell me, which actually is harder than we think it is. And also to see ourselves accurately and to see those blind spots that we may have that we need other people to help us see ourselves accurately. Yeah. Thank you for that. Those truth, relationship and identity. When I heard these three, I was like, oh, my God, I know why that, that piece of feedback went wrong. <laughs> I, God, yes. if only I would have approached it maybe with a bit more clear signposting, as you talk about in the book as well later, then that could have really helped me and I I really took a lot from from those three things, and, I, and I, in my own experience of giving feedback, because I have to do it often. Um, you know why you didn't make it through to the next round of interviews, why the client has said no, or whatever it is, and yeah, and it's difficult because at that point I've either had to form enough of a relationship with the individual that they'll let it land, um, and I'm sure they're they're assessing me for truth, um, and, and and it's it's a very difficult one to get. And I, but I, when I heard those, it was really great. But one of the other things you, you identified, which is, is a mental model now I have up on my wall, um, this is how much I love this one, is the, the three types of feedback that we're getting, yeah. right? Um, would you tell us about the three types of feedback? Yeah, yeah. And I also should say that, that we didn't make these up, actually. These come from um, Roger Fisher and Alan Sharp and John Richardson. Um, in a book called um, Getting It Done. Mm. Uh, John Richardson is my husband, by the way, so <laughs> I better give credit where credit is due here. Um, but, but we found the categories incredibly helpful. So the idea here is, is that although we toss around this word feedback, that there are actually three different types of feedback, and they have really different purposes. And the easy way to remember them is is the acronym ACE, A-C-E, which, by the way, we forgot to put the acronym in the book. Do you know, I've just realized that. So I, had, I, hadn't even, <laughs> I hadn't even realized yeah. that. There we go. We're a little <laughs> bit... 
we're a little bit allergic to acronyms because so many of them end up being forced. But uh, and so we we have a bias <laughs> against them. But that led us not to include this. And and now that we've been teaching it forever, we're like, oh, it's really helpful. We should just put it in the damn book. So the three types: ACE. Um, a is appreciation. And appreciation just says, like, I see you and I get you and I notice how far you've come and I see how hard you're working. Um, and it has a big, obviously, appreciation has a big impact on engagement and motivation. It's what keeps us going, mm. right? And makes us feel seen. Um, C is coaching. And coaching is anything designed to help me get better at something. Mm. Coaching has become a term of art right, in the business world for a, a particular approach, elicitive way to help someone learn. And that's included, but we actually also mean the bigger category. Like, if it is designed to make me better, more knowledgeable, more effective, more efficient, um, so that could be correction, suggestion, advice, whatever, it counts as coaching. Mm. And that's the engine for learning and change and adapting and improving over time, of course. But then there's a third type of feedback, um, which is the E, which is evaluation. Mm. And evaluation rates or ranks us. Again, some set of expectations, it tells us where we stand and how we're doing. So obviously grades are evaluation. Getting or not getting the offer in your world is evaluation. Performance reviews are evaluation. And evaluation is actually the type of feedback that we typically have the biggest reaction to, feeling judged. Mm. Um, and so one of the trends lately has been people getting rid of performance reviews, meaning organizations canceling performance reviews because they want to focus on really the appreciation and coaching aspects of feedback, which are actually the things that are most important and should be going on throughout the whole year as we talk about the work we're doing together and get things done day in and day out. Appreciation and coaching, making those part of your everyday life um, as you work together um, is key. And what we've noticed in some cases is that if you get rid of evaluation entirely and people really genuinely don't have a way to figure out whether they're on track and if they're doing okay, yeah if they're a superstar or they just think they're a superstar, but they're not, and they don't know, like, should I even put my hat in the ring for this next thing? If you can't tell where you stand, you get a lot of anxiety in the system mm. and people start to try to listen for how am I doing through coaching or appreciation? Like, how come you're getting all the appreciation? Yeah. Does that mean I'm not doing okay? Yeah. Or how come I'm getting so much coaching? Am I in trouble? I'm about to be fired. So you do need some mechanism to let people know whether they're on track. I, I agree with that actually. I've I've got a theory why that people they organizations are moving away from evaluation and it's 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 quite a fun simple thing actually. I don't think many organizations define jobs very well. Um certainly in my mm. experience it's it's something like I'll give you a job, you've got to do this job, um, go and figure it out. And and the and the jobs evolve so much to at some point that the, the job description against which they need to be evaluated is not clear in their own mind. And the, the key competencies, right. what they have to do in that job can be unknown to both the giver and the receiver of the job. So evaluation becomes very difficult. And let's face it, as organizations evolve and things change, it becomes difficult to keep track of those evaluation components. I, I think that all of us as human beings need all three types of feedback, but we need different 
types at different times. Mm. And when we ask for feedback, we're not even clear what we're asking for. And when people offer feedback, they think they're coaching. So even when the giver is trying to coach, I think we're we're prone to hear it as judgment or evaluation. And so I think it's a joint project to say, like, what what am I trying to offer you? And what are you hearing? Yeah. The, the receiver has to get good at disentangling or trying to identify what is getting in the way of that feedback. And then we have to appreciate that the relationship that we have to them and how difficult it is making it for them to receive it. And I think once we understand those yeah. complexities, it, I mean, that's where I came to your idea of like being signposting in conversations. Okay, and I've done it, I've done it myself. I've gone, okay, look, I, I, I've, let me give you an example, Sheila. I'm, I, writ, I wrote some poetry recently because one of my newest things, I'm writing poetry. All the teams that fail, fail when a fire is lit and an angry, slow burning takes hold. The fire starts so fragile extinguishable at any moment and it's excruciatingly embarrassing for a 38 year old man to be writing poetry and um and so i wrote a piece of a poem and i i gave it to a colleague and i'd listened to your book and i said look okay what i don't want from you <laughs> is telling me that you don't like it or that you you do like it or whatever i just want you to tell me do you think it works is a is a piece what did you hear in it? Um, was was the length of it okay? I was very, I was very, very specific about the feedback I wanted, because I felt at that moment in quite a, a vulnerable state that my, and that my enthusiasm for the whole thing could be crushed in a moment, like some, like kind of tiny butterfly, and so I kind of really tried to put some boundaries around the feedback that I was eliciting, knowing how I felt about it, and then, but I also had to do something very specific because I knew. In this instance, it's Samantha who's, who works for me. I had to be very clear to her that she was safe in the relationship situation as well, that I wasn't going to be upset and I, this is the, the boundaries of it. And, and so I found those signposting actually helped us both go, okay, let's do that. Um, so I, I thank you, by the way. So yeah. maybe that's, that's saved me in, in still writing some poetry. But um, yeah, that's how I've used all of the things that you've said to create signposting, create boundaries, and then get more confident with the process. And now I'll ask for more and more, I think, as I as I go on in, in that journey myself. I love the fact that you were so clear because particularly as a writer myself, I have learned that when I hand a draft of something to someone, I really need to be clear what kind of feedback I am asking them for. Mm. And when someone hands me something to read, I've learned to ask. And so you're asking for appreciation and then some bit of evaluation of whether this is worth continuing to work with. Maybe I'm asking, you know, is this worth pursuing, which is a judgment that I'm asking about the quality of the idea. Um, and it, it could also be that I am at a place where I say, I just need some coaching and I need it on a couple of specific fronts. I'm not sure the opening to this chapter mm. really works or is clear, or I'm struggling with whether this example is, is the right fit. So Sheila, thank you. You've shared so many amazing components of your book and the work that you've done. But I suppose maybe this is one question, maybe it's a bit of a tough one, but I, it's like, what has changed? What have you changed in your thinking since writing the book, if anything? Hmm. Well, so my, 
you know, like you, I've got two boys and a girl, but I, I'm a little bit ahead of you on the age curve. And so a lot of what I'm thinking about right now has to do with, um, when I need to withhold my feedback (laughs) as my son, my eldest turns 21 and my second son turns 18. Um, and my daughter is 14, which is a tough age for a girl. She's already so much harder and more judgmental of herself than, you know, it's painful to, to watch and to listen to. And so I've, I've really actually been thinking about how do I need to handle the feedback I have for them differently based on who they are, obviously, but also differently based on where they are in their own sort of developmental arc and where our relationship is. Like what's my role um, as they're changing and I'm changing. So by the way, my kid, one of my kids' favorite things to say to me is like, mom, just take the feedback. (laughs) Right. So it's not, it's not necessarily easy and they just have more ammunition against me. But, um, but yeah, I've been thinking about that um, as our relationship with each other is changing. That's wonderful. I love the way the kids really can cut through at times and dismantle these, you know, these sort of identities that we create at work and in in our professional lives. And then just take the feedback, you know, you know, stop being an idiot, dad, or stop wearing that shirt. That that shirt looks terrible. Yes, your existence is embarrassing. So... Yeah, that's definitely where where we're at with my daughter right now. Wonderful. I mean, yeah. again, I've been so very grateful for everything you've shared today and the time that you've given to us today as well. Um, um, do you have three books that you would recommend to anybody? Well, that's interesting because I think what I was thinking about was what books have made a big impression on me when I was... I was in middle school. I found a book on my parents' shelf and I was trying to remember the name of it because it wasn't how to win friends and influence people. It was a book about friendship written for adults, but about the nature of friendship and how to be, make friends by being a friend. And I think that's one of the earliest books I can think of that got me thinking about human interaction as a thing to study and talk about. Um, and it actually helped me make friends and be a, a good, loyal friend. Um, Is that the title, Making Friends by Being a Friend, do you think? I don't think. I was I was actually trying to find it this morning, and I don't know if I can. I may have to call my mother. If, <laughs> if, if she finds it on the shelf, I will. Um, Please do, yeah. I will send you the right title. Getting to Yes, of course, it was a seminal book in my life and I think is a beautifully written, simple book, elegant book that sets out a framework for understanding interaction and negotiation. Yeah, Getting to Yes is is actually the one I'm listening to right now. The Roger Fisher um, and William... Bill Urey and Bruce Patton. Yep. So Bruce Bruce is also my co-author on Difficult Conversations, Bruce and Doug. Excellent. Amazing. Okay, getting to yes, and is there one a third one? Do you do you like fiction or something else that's non-business or self-improvement related? Yeah, there's a book called, and this is actually by a, a British writer named Sarah Hill, and it's it's for leaders. It's called "Where Did You Learn to Behave Like That," and it's about. Um, the ways in which our childhood experiences and childhood story influence how we lead 
and maybe in particular how we lead under stress. Mm. And Sarah is just a beautiful, authentic human being. And I think she's hit upon something that I have not, that, that is sort of part of the journey and that I'm on an earlier part of the journey than I probably should be on. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think it's really valuable. That is wonderful. Um, thank you very much for those three recommendations. In terms of like people, if they want to hear about the work that you're doing, you're doing so many different things. I know you're, um, you do corporate coaching, you do some corporate workshops, you're obviously lecturing at Harvard. Um, if people want to reach out to you, um, kind of find out more about where you are, how would people find you, Sheila? Well, so the easy answer to that is that although I did not like my name as a kid, the, in the internet age, having a unique name is a big a big plus. <laughs> so if you just Google Sheila Heen, H-E-E-N, you're going to find me. And all of my different emails and the hats I different wear, they all funnel to the same place. Cool. Um, and I'm on LinkedIn and, and all of that as well. Um, and yeah, it's been really interesting. Maybe the other thing we're thinking about is we're doing virtual sessions um, for leaders. And how do we talk about feedback effectively while we're working remotely yeah um and we're not in the same room where i can quickly get a sense of like how's your day going and what's going on with you and and we can connect it's just harder and so that's a big piece of what we've been doing um lately as well well i um i hope anybody listening out there who's interested takes you up on that and um i i hope this isn't the last conversation sheila that you and i have around this um and this idea of feedback because i'm you know, thoroughly interested. I realize I've got lots of development to take. I'm going to give you some feedback now, Sheila. You've done a fantastic job. Thank you very much. Just some appreciation. <laughs> um, I, I really appreciate what you've done and, and what you've given to us today. And so maybe it's that that's just appreciation. and That's the right thing for us to do to where to end it. Well, thank you. And, and thank you for a really fascinating conversation. It was such a pleasure. Well, there you are, Sheila Heen. What a great conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did and you can take away some of the gems that Sheila shares. But none of this would have been possible without the fantastic team behind the podcast. Big thank you to our producer, Andrea Moraskin, and of course, the whole Exige team, that's Samantha Smart, Fiona Leitonen, and everybody else who's made this episode possible. I wish you all a wonderful day or evening wherever you are and I hope you'll join us again at the next episode of Talent Equals. So if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe or leave a review on wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, so thank you very much. We also have a newsletter on our website, talentequals.com, so you can keep up to date with all of the things we're doing here at Talent Equals and the amazing guests that we have coming up this year.